0: As with any Christian sect, or any religion for that matter, Pastor Jim Loomer and his congregation have the right to worship as strictly as they wish, at least to the extent allowed by law. I've been chided here and there for criticizing Jim's school and church, as if I'm some iconoclast hell-bent on taking down Jesus Christ himself. But these episodes and the accounts contained therein aren't meant as an attack on Christianity or evangelism, or pentecostalism, or Jesus. They're laser-focused on one place, and those who have escaped, those who tell me their stories, describe Jim Loomer's houses of worship and education with one four-letter word. Well, if they're so culty, they get in between the couple,
1: they talk crap about, instead of like bringing the couple like together trying to help them, they'll try to separate them, and they would try to do that with children and parents, too. They just, Susan Martin tried to do that with me and my parents. What I tell people is I grew up in a cult. Because that's what it was. Like, and, and like, hmm, the podcast really think about how it's always almost expected to live
2: by reason I'm like, no wonder doesn't think I mean that's a question because that's exactly the type of place you would have There was one day that Pastor Jim brought Mrs. Martin up and basically made her like a model freaking example. Telling teachers and students that we should all be more like Mrs. Martin. And it was like some weird cult shit. Like, I felt like he was brainwashed.
3: I really believe that some kind of like cult, they all like don't even see what they're doing. They're just like stuck in their practice and in their ways that they don't even like, it doesn't even register that they're all like fucked up. Yeah, I mean,
0: it's a cult, right? Yeah. of true Christian church, like, this is a cult. If you Google the warning signs of a cult, it's hard to ignore the striking alignment with Berean's patterns and practices. For example, ultimate authority established in one leader, though it's not clear whether Jim or Susan would win that battle royale. Jim's always had a thing for the Book of Revelations, and these days he's focused on the woke liberal agenda, which is pushing us closer and closer to Armageddon. So box number two, paranoia about the outside world, is easy to check off. A third sign is the shunning of those who leave. When I was leaving
1: Iran, Iran uh, I was told by a senior person there that they've never seen it go well with people who leave here. It was almost like a curse. Who is that person? Kathy Memer.
0: The fourth sign, the attempted delegitimization of former members, is summarized like this in a Medium article. Because the cult considers itself the ultimate authority on truth, it can't imagine anybody leaving it with their integrity intact. Thus, the article reads, it has to perpetuate a false narrative that former members were deceived, proud, immoral, or lazy. If former members speak out, they are dismissed as bitter, angry, dishonest, or evil. Cults often impose some kind of shunning to shame former members and to prevent them from infecting others with the truth. People ask me if I worry that Pastor Jim hears me say these things and gets angry. If you asked him, he'd probably deny all knowledge of my existence. Pain-in-the-ass podcasters, he'd tell you, aren't worth his time or energy. Jim's focus is with his flock, those gathered with him to sing and worship and keep their eye on the ultimate prize. It's not like Milford Christian congregants would listen to this show anyway, because at Milford Church, skepticism is suppressed. That's the fifth sign of a cult, by the way. If you're only allowed to study your organization through approved sources, Medium tells us, you're probably in a cult. Cults view critical thinking as an infectious disease, and every effort is made to suppress it. Doubting members are encouraged to isolate themselves from outside influences and focus solely on the doctrine of the cult. Criticism is forbidden. People who contradict the group are viewed as persecutors and are often given labels like anti, apostate, or suppressive person. Members are discouraged from consuming any material that is critical of the group. You don't have to take my word for it, or mediums. You just have to join me every Wednesday and Sunday night to watch as the church broadcasts its service and Jim's sermon live on Facebook. The good pastor has never directly mentioned this podcast, much less the accounts it's contained and the accusers themselves. But these days, he directs quite a few thoughts to those not gathered under Milford Christian's roof. Unnamed viewers he calls, quote, people watching by way of the internet. And these days, when he does that, his hints are about as subtle as a whore in church.
4: Giving heed, before, let me say, if you're listening and you have distanced yourself from a local church this one or any other bible believing church it is a step you don't i mean i don't think you really concern yourself with this too much or maybe you do but whatever keeps you away from joining together with other believers assembling yourselves together is not a good thing he says in the latter days some will depart from the faith and they'll start giving heed They'll start paying attention to deceiving spirits. Now, deceiving spirits are one of the categories of spirits, demonic spirits listed in the Word of God. You can go to the bank knowing that there are indeed spirits, demonic spirits that want to fool you so that you will be off track rather than on track. They're they're deceiving spirits. I said to you, when when people get free from a demonic spirit, they need to get filled up with the word, they need to get filled up with the Holy Spirit so that they can stay free. Because the, 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 the kingdom of darkness is rather relentless until the very end of time, right? So we're living in this time when, when these spirits can continue to harass. So here's, here's the final point I want to make to you. Uh, We mentioned how important it is to renew your mind with the Word of God. Probably the greatest nutrient against being deceived by demons or by a deceiving lying spirit so that you're not deceived by that you need to renew your mind with the word of God. Philippians 4.8 says, what, Whatsoever things are pure and lovely and of good report, those praiseworthy things, think on these things. He said, you've not been given a spirit of fear, but you've given been given a spirit of power, love, and a sound mind. God wants you to have power, know the love, and have a sound mind, and the sound mind is is also understood as self-control, basically this. You have power over your mind. You have control over your mind. It's your job to fill your mind, to think on the things that are pure and lovely, to renew your mind with the word of truth so that there's not a backlash, and you can do that.
0: The sixth sign of a cult, the one I want to focus on now, is its reliance on shame. If you need your group in order to feel worthy, loved, or sufficient, Medium tells us, you're probably in a cult. Cult leaders trap members in shame cycles by imposing abnormally strict codes of conduct, usually prescriptions about appearance, sex, and relationships, guilting members for their shortcomings, and then positioning themselves as the unique remedy to the feelings of guilt which they themselves created. Cult members are made to believe that they are insufficient or unworthy on their own, and that the only way to become worthy is to confess their shortcomings to the group or leader. The leader then becomes the mediator of worthiness and the foundation of the member's self-esteem. Leaders who can make followers feel bad about anything can use shame to manipulate followers into doing anything. While shame cycles can, of course, be used to harness boys and men to keep them in line, it's more often the women and girls of the cult, consider the Manson family, Nexium, Warren Jeffs FLDS, who bear that harness's brunt. If he heard me dare suggest this about his House of the Holy, I bet Pastor Jim would be stunned. After all, Milford Christian Church, at least on paper, highly prizes its girls and women believes they play an important role in every aspect of life. In the family, the church's website reads, the woman is the wife, mother, and nurturer, the anchor of the home. Our moms were always the ones we turn to for help, the hub of the wheel that holds it all together, irreplaceable, making the family work through the ages. Of course, some women, the ultimate Christian women and wives, are more exalted than others. The key to finding the perfect woman in the eyes of God lies in the Bible, of course, in Proverbs 31. Who can find a virtuous wife, for her worth is far above rubies, rhapsodizes the New King James Version. The heart of her husband safely trusts her, so he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and willingly works it with her hands. She is like the merchant ships. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night, provides food for her household, and a portion for her maidservants. She considers a field and buys it. From her profits, she plants a vineyard. She girds herself with strength and strengthens her arms. She perceives that her merchandise is good, and her lamp does not go out by night. She stretches out her hands to the distaff, and her hand holds the spindle. She extends her hands to the poor. Yes, she reaches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household is clothed in scarlet. She makes tapestry for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes garments and sells them and supplies sashes for the merchants. Strength and honor are her clothing. She shall rejoice in time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and on her tongue is the law of kindness. She watches over the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many daughters have done well, but you excel them all. Charm is deceitful, and beauty is passing, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands and let her own works praise her in the gates. The exaltation of strong traditional family-oriented women is not the problem here. It's the path a Milford Christian girl must take to become one. Far from being precious, protected, valued above rubies, Bahrain girls are treated as rough stones with only one path to being polished into something worthy. Strict adherence to the school's strict rules on dress dating, and sexuality. Because after everything else, after isolation from the outside world and the insistence on conformity, after the humiliation, the beatings, the terror, the girls of Milford Christian were just roadblocks to their male counterparts, hoping to be worthy in the eyes of the Lord. To Jim, Susan, and their buddies, the girls of Milford Christian were nothing but Jezebels and whores. I'm Jessica Fritz-Aguire, and this is the podcast now known as Walk Softly Children, formerly known as Sticky Beak. This is Season 3, Episode 10, Above Rubies.
5: Walk softly children. Walk softly children. Walk softly children. Find your freedom, little children.
0: For Milford Christian, a clan hell-bent on fostering conformity in its kids, there was no instrument more important than its dress code. The code's first draft, written in the late 90s by original headmaster Ron Kirk, spanned two pages of the student handbook. Attitudes toward life practices are begun early, Kirk wrote. Our purpose in the dress code is to inculcate biblical modesty. One cannot expect a child to acquire modesty at once when mature, but habits of attitude formed early will prevail. We should not attract undue attention to ourselves, Kurt continued. Rather, Christians should set the standards for the rest of the world. Rather than be a cause for stumbling, our dress should inspire a sense of virtue and honor. Consider the example of the pilgrims. Living in a ribald age where morals were languishing, the pilgrims undertook to live the biblical standard without, quote, tarrying for any. In dress, modesty was the rule, but with grace and style, not in dead drabness as they are often pictured. The pilgrims wore colors and styles that reflected their abundant life in Christ, but understated and refined so that they were elegant and modest. Please remember the goal of the rules is to help train the heart so that our outward lives will please and glorify our God. Sometimes the brain kids were required to literally emulate the pilgrims, to don costumes, and proselytize at town events. I remember meeting people as an adult, one former student wrote me, and they were like, oh yeah, you guys were the weirdos at the parade handing out pencils and colonial dresses. When school was actually in session, Ron Kirk wanted it run like a business, little workers dressed to face the day. Milford Christian kids were never sloppy, but always clean and neat, dressed in the styles of Oxford, Ivy League, and prep. Anything faddish or featuring a brand or any play clothes were out. Boys were required to wear long pants, no jeans, as well as a tucked in button down shirt, a tie, and a belt or suspenders. No facial hair other than sideburns was allowed. The girls' dress code was something else entirely. Girls were required to wear a dress or skirt with a slip underneath because pants were just an excuse to show off their butts. Denim skirts were permitted but short hemlines were not, with girls taught from an early age that short skirts, as Kirk wrote, are not modest when the girls play. Children grow so quickly, Kirk continued, that soon the short skirts make it difficult to be modest in the best of circumstances. Therefore, girls' needs had to be covered, Kirk's handbook directed, when they are in a normal, comfortable sitting or standing position to be modest. This last gesture is a clear statement of love to the boys and men. Girls' shirts had to be femininely cut knit with sleeves or caps, no square-cut boy-style tees or spaghetti straps. Also forbidden were makeup, jewelry, and sheer nylon hose, at least until the seventh grade, when indulgence was permitted as long as it was, quote, restrained. Otherwise, Kirk eschewed hard and fast rules. He wanted kids to develop the judgment and ability to see differences in refinement, beauty, and grace which, he believed, would prepare them for whatever office of leadership the Lord might bring. Living upon principle, O'Pinekirk, demands wisdom, the ability to weigh competing principles, and rank and balance them justly. A principled dress code will teach godly wisdom. On the other hand, a completely detailed and absolute dress code amounting to a uniform enslaves one to the letter of the law, which in turn encourages a mindless and slavish conformity such is not acceptable to our educational mission. The letter of the law completely undermines our purpose, to teach the spirit of the law for real life, so as to be internally self-governed. Self-government on the part of those seeking to find the Lord's will is one of the key ingredients for biblical principle to prevail. Kirk, however, warned children against pressing against the law's spirit, as the only recourse would then be to impose the law's letter. This past summer, when he found out what Susan had done, Kirk was full of regret. That's not at all, he said, how it was supposed to be. After Ron Kirk's ouster in the early 2000s, Susan Martin revamped the handbook entirely, positing a goal for the dress code that, at least on the surface, echoed her predecessors. Clothing that tends toward fads or trends reflect worldly rather than biblical attitudes, she wrote. Therefore, we refrain from them. This reflects the principle of being in the world, but not of it. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 tells us to be not conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Our goal is to train the taste of the children, to honor and reflect the spirit of the law. When everyone is willing to restrain themselves and practice self-government, we are able to refrain from external government. As always, Susan encouraged the parents to practice and preach the school's rules in their homes. Parents or students may notice variations in the practical application of the dress code she wrote. With regard to these differences, we encourage parents to respond to their children by instructing them that it is their own consciences and training which are at issue, not others. If everyone is willing to restrain himself, then the school will have the power to educate, to help form, and direct. If even a few press against the limits here, we will be reduced to the letter of the law again and our purposes, will be defeated. For Mrs. Martin, however, trusting children to develop godly wisdom and practice self-government was as out of the question as letting Satan himself through her front door. Under Susan's rule, the list of specific requirements grew. For boys, it wasn't that bad. They were now required to wear socks above the ankle and forbidden bandanas and do-rags. For the girls, taught from a tender age that their bodies were sinful, it was a whole other story. Andrew, the artist, got a reminder around age six or seven when his teacher discovered a sketch of two female nudes in his notebook.
2: When she saw what it was and I saw what it was, oh my God, my face, I could just feel my face at the same time drain of color and also turn bright red. And I'm like, oh boy, I knew it wasn't going to be good. And... She had taken it, and instead of just talking to me and being like, what is this, she asked what it was, ripped it out, and proceeded to take it to, I think, Pastor Jim, and then of course, you know who saw it, Mrs. Martin, made me feel bad for doing what I did, and they're pretty much screaming at me to not draw those kind of things, and that it was disgusting and dirty and perverted and I shouldn't be doing it. Well, you know what? I'm still doing it. Now I do it professionally. So
0: under Susan, the girl's dress code came with a preamble. It is important to practice being a virtuous woman at all times in all areas of life on campus and off. She commanded Susan reminded girls of the book of Peter counseling that their beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair, gold jewelry, and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of their inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For Susan, before a girl's inner light could shine, she had to render the self seen by the world as unattractive as possible. If you looked pretty, one woman wrote me, Susan would give the nastiest looks and point to the offending pieces of clothing in disgust. I just think that when Susan saw an opportunity to hurt a child, she did. She did her best to keep all the girls from feeling pretty. To be pretty or attractive is a sin, even at age 10. Starting from the ground up, Mrs. Martin forbade open-toed and spike-heeled shoes. Fine for young conservative girls, you'd think, until you learn that she screamed at a talented musician headed to a recital for a slight half-inch heel. It was the one time I felt pretty and had new shoes, the woman wrote me. Once, at church, Susan spied a student wearing a dress much nicer than the potato sack she expected and glared at her all through service. How old was the offender, I asked. Sixteen? Seventeen? Eleven, came the answer. Parents of female students received special admonishment. Please supervise your daughter's purchases so they will honor modesty and be good examples to other impressionable young girls, Mrs. Martin's handbook instructed. Remind her regularly of these principles of modesty, inward beauty, and self-government to avoid unnecessary embarrassment at school. Ordinarily, Susan wrote, if we must speak to a student regarding attire, we will privately explain the principle of our objection and ask that, if possible, the student not wear the garment again. In less self-governed cases, she warned, we will take stronger measures as required. Even the most casual listener of this podcast will know that Susan's promise to take it easy on the kids, to privately explain any objections to dress, was a joke. Every aspect of each child's clothing, at least for the girls, was monitored and harped upon to the point of fanaticism. Susan was so insistent, she made it part of the curriculum.
1: brothers to
0: stumble right but we're um, also I mean, talking go ahead and Martin had a one specific class that all the girls had to take
1: which was a modesty class mm-hmm. where we had to like learn about how to not make people stumble she literally had to get up one by one stand in front of each other and criticize what as do there and tell each other you know what was inappropriate i remember they made me like bend over and they were like oh, we can see down your shirt and i was like
0: We were each individually called up to the front of the altar because the class was in the sanctuary, and we had to tell each other what about each other could cause boys to stumble, one source wrote me. And it was invasive. Raise your arms to see if your shirt goes up. Talk about things that were too tight. And in extreme cases, like mine, bending over to, quote, expose us. She called me out as a sixth or seventh grader for not wearing an undershirt. She made me lean over so everyone could see down my shirt and chastise me. Sometimes Pastor Loomer was invited to join the fun, like when Susan taught the girls, some as young as 10, to cross their arms over their breasts when hugging men, so as not to excite them. Susan hugged Jim Loomer while covering her breasts to demonstrate, one woman told me. I remember looking up at that. I didn't even have my period yet. Susan was big on bellies and boobs. To Ron Kirk's requirement that girls' shirts be femininely cut with caps or sleeves, she added a litany of new rules. Again, as you might expect at a strict Christian school, belly shirts were forbidden. But so were blouses that weren't long enough to cover every inch of belly when a girl's hands were raised, which they often were in song or prayer. A girl's blouse should drape gracefully, not cling, Susan wrote, and if it was deemed too sheer or low-cut, a camisole was required underneath. If you were unlucky enough to have developed breasts, you were forbidden from revealing any part of them by way of the blouse's cut, and Susan banned button-downs and blouses gathered in the center by accordion pleats because they brought attention to a girl's development. And you better be sure you were wearing a bra. When I was going through puberty, and I had the awkward triangle boobs every
2: person gets, you know, when you're hitting that age, and I was wearing, like, this... Like spandexy type shirt. So it was like clinging to my body. And I forgot what teacher it was, but they're like loud enough. You know, we were standing, we we're about to walk into the classroom, and I could see the students. So I know they could hear what she had said. And she's like, You know, you really need to either change your clothes or wear a bra. She's like, Because. I could see everything right now, and she made it sound like I did it on purpose when I didn't, and it wasn't a sexual thing. I was just, I I didn't even pick my clothes at that age. My parents dressed me, so it's like, leave me alone.
0: Susan even monitored the bras themselves to make sure they provided, quote, good support and coverage without accentuating or revealing cleavage or see-through exposure. Some girls, though, could never win, as Susan always found cause for complaint and criticism. Her daughter Emily, well-endowed from a young age, sent me a photo of herself at 14 or 15, smiling with friends. I'm wearing a compression bra and an undershirt to try to hide my boobs in this picture, she texted. I was wearing a hoodie, but Susan made me take it off. In drafting the dress code, Susan was able to let her underwear obsession fully flower. Andrew, who later came out as trans, was uncomfortable in dresses, but he had finally found one he liked. It flared when he spun. So he spun and spun and spun. I was really little, he told me. I was just being silly. And I literally got screamed at for doing that. They
2: screamed at me. They're like, you're being inappropriate. You're going to show your underwear. And they're screaming at me for it.
0: Those grilled about size six white Hanes will recognize Susan's request to parents of girls to please be sure your daughter chooses modest undergarments that reflect her virtue and modesty, particularly while changing for gym class. Hosiery above the ankle bone was now compulsory, as were underwear completely covering each girl's butt. Even parents, even Susan's friends, weren't above her chastisements.
6: I remember we were sitting at the house and Like we were just hanging out. We were there because Susan and the mom were Miss were like best, 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 best best friends. Super besties. Anyway, we were there hanging out and like having dinner or whatever. And she was like folding laundry. And was maybe I don't know. Sixteen? Fifteen? Sixteen? And was folding her laundry and there were like some thongs in there. And Susan tried to like come at the about the laundry. The mother. The mother. The grown woman. Right. About what her daughter was wearing on her fucking ass.
0: Oh, it was about it in was her the, own damn girl's house laundry. Yeah. Is that without the names?
6: Sure. Okay. Without the names. That's, yeah. yeah.
0: And <sighs> was like,
6: the mom was <clears throat> like, what do you want me to do? Like, tell her what underwear she can't wear? Like, she doesn't like underwear lines. Right. Yeah. Like, well, right. You want me to tell her, like, she can't, she has to be embarrassed by her underwear lines? Right. Or embarrassed because you're wearing a thong. Right. Like, but now you're shaming her for, like, she, and even I think even said, like, what do you want me to do? Like, hold her down, rip it off her?
0: But when it came to the kids, Susan's power was not only practically unlimited, it came with deputies, backup.
1: I remember Jim first wife, she would stare at the
0: A normal person might ask, how would Kathy or Susan know? They knew because they pulled the unluckiest girls into Susan's office for personal checks. Susan's handbook, as had Ron Kirk's, allowed additional undergarments, including tights, if it was cold. But when one girl dared to wear leggings tucked into her socks under her dress, Both Loomers pulled her into Pastor Jim's office. The offense? According to Jim and Kathy, she was trying to be sexual. When girls wear leggings, they told the girl, they're really imagining being in their underwear, being naked, because that's the closest thing. That's what they really want. And Jim Loomer was on a roll. Emily Martin recalled a day when she was 10, arriving to school in a skirt she'd borrowed from a classmate who was a goody-goody. It was light blue with little flowers all over it. I remember feeling really pretty, Emily texted me. It was cut a bit higher in the front than in the back, but it still covered my knees. And Jim Loomer called me to his office to tell me that I was dressed like one of those brass dolls. And Susan sent me home. I was having such horrid body issues, and I wore hoodies and denim skirts for the rest of my school career there. The good pastor and his wife weren't the only two Susan deputized, or at least acted as though she had.
1: Anyone who would get a position and didn't power around that school had pretty much carte blanche to say anything they wanted today.
0: One particular youth pastor had no problem telling girls exactly what he thought. And
1: that youth pastor is on the sex offender registry.
0: <laughs> We're talking about Alan Parody, right?
1: Yes we are.
0: The other suspects? You can probably guess.
1: And then I remember once when um That Mark Vincent was that, and he was like, she was wearing a dress with some cleavage, and he was just staring at her the whole time, and eventually came up to her and was like, "Missed the button." There were no buttons on this dress.
0: <laughs> <laughs> berean's modesty obsession fostered deep shame in its girls. I felt very awkward and not pretty until after Burian. When I went to high school, one former student texted me, "I was chubby, and the dresses I wore were not flattering at all." I still have crazy issues with my body and modesty, wrote another, even though I don't believe any of it. It still fucks with me and what I am comfortable wearing. I wouldn't even wear shorts until like five years ago because I internalized that showing my legs was slutty. And the messed up thing was that I never judged other people for their clothing choices, but it still felt like I was wrong if I did it. Emily Martin thought she knew why her mother cared so much. She took a lot of satisfaction in making me hate myself especially my body, Susan's daughter texted me. This started early, when little Emily would sit with her hands tucked between her legs for comfort, for warmth. Her mother was disgusted, accusing Emily of somehow trying to pleasure herself and beating her for it. When I was a teenager, Emily told me, she had this, like, shift. Or tried to be friends with me. We were watching Gilmore Girls together one afternoon, and she saw Lorelai and Rory And she said she wanted our relationship to be more like that. So I thought, oh, we're going to be friends and do girl talk and shopping and shit. One day we're driving down the road and we see this person looking really disheveled. And I say, geez, don't ever let me leave the house looking like that. And this horrid wench said, you've left the house looking worse than that regularly. I was like 14 and I cried. I wore a hoodie to hide my body for all of my teens. Like, I mean, all summer. And then she would tell me I smelled and had me using men's deodorant for a while, which I hated. There was more. There were no full-length mirrors in our house, Emily told me, because Susan hated the sight of herself, I assume. I didn't see myself naked in a mirror until I was in my 20s. It was more than just being forbidden to look at myself, Emily said. I literally have no idea, no mental image, of what my body looked like until I was 20, 21. I think we were all shamed so much that we disassociated from our bodies. Thinking about them too much was sinful. Berean boys were also taught that their bodies were objects of sin, vehicles for evil. One former student well acquainted with Alan Parody, gave me a glimpse into Alan's youth Bible study, open only to boys. Alan got a lot of mileage out of Matthew chapter 5, verse 30. I'll let you look the verse up, the source wrote, and see if you can't decipher what he was talking about. So I googled, if your right hand causes you to sin, the verse reads, cut it off and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. I remembered this metaphor from Catholic school, but at Milford Christian, it was more than that. It was like don't masturbate, the now man told me. Avoid giving into lust, It's better to cut off your own hand than to masturbate. Not that he was saying we should literally cut a hand off, but the conversation about sin and lust and masturbation was so pervasive in the Christian scene, among evangelicals anyway. We would go to these conferences every year called East Coast of Flame, led by younger Christian people, like early 20s. They would do breakout sessions where the males and females would go into separate hotel conference rooms to talk about the male-female stuff, and the guy's session was pretty much only about lust and masturbation. It was insane. Pray to stop masturbating, having accountability partners to keep them from giving in to the desire, like AA for masturbation. So imagine my shock when this former Milford Christian boy followed up with this. I do remember, he recalled, that Susan Martin asked me about masturbation when I was like 16 while her kids played outside. Didn't go any further than that, but it was weird. Sue was like, why do you do it? What do you think about? And I was just like, nothing. It feels good. Ha ha. With mixed messages abounding, perhaps the boys of Berean can't be blamed for some of their more troubling behavior. You might recall the story of David Vincent at four, trying like hell to rip off a 10-year-old girl's bathing suit. David, many sources told me, always had a hard time keeping his hands to himself. Emily Martin remembered punching him in the head for grabbing her breasts and crotch. And it got more disturbing from there.
2: Now I remember his son. Um, I remember my Nana babysitting him. And I feel like the kid needed like an outlet because I was older than him, I believe. And I remember every time I would like go with my Nana to to watch him with her, like the kid would always like whip his wiener out and like chase me with it. Now, whether that be or try and touch me with it, now, whether that be just some stupid kid thing or something he was doing because something else was going on in his family, I don't really know. I, that didn't really bother me. I mean, he was very little. I would just be like, Ew, get away from me, and
0: then tell my Nana. But my Nana didn't have that job for long. Some former Berean students are haunted by stuff that had seemed innocent when they were kids. One boy's friend had rhapsodized about a dream in which he'd seen the breasts of another friend's mother, remembered her nipples. It could have been harmless, this man now told me. But these days I wonder. Ron Kirk remembered a boy, not from Berean, but definitely raised in that community.
3: I was also abused, you know, molested as a kid. Uh, this was shortly after Connecticut so right it was not not at Berean or anything but you know I was nine and he was like 13 and it didn't even click in my brain until my 20s that like oh yeah I was right I was sexually molested like oh I didn't have any friends so I'm just like okay well you know this is this I what guys do, you know, we're, we're talking about stuff we're not supposed to be talking about. And yeah. so at the time, it was just like, you know, friendship bonding moments. Yeah,
0: yeah. Berean's rules on relationships did nothing to put its students at ease about growing up, coming into their own as young men and women. At the outset, of course, any feelings, not to mention relationships, falling on the LGBTQ rainbow were out of the question. Under the heading of Community, Milford Christian's website notes the church's belief that humans are designed to uphold the biblical concept of marriage as the union of a man and a woman. Berean claims it doesn't discriminate, but it does reserve the right to throw kids and teachers out to uphold, quote, biblical principles and procedures. No biblically forbidden behavior or lifestyle was to be practiced or espoused. This meant you couldn't be or support anything other than cisgender heterosexuality. But Berean also granted itself great leeway as to political positions, financial responsibility, national citizenship, and association with unnamed hate groups. When one recent Berean graduate came out as gay after spending the week at Emily Martin's apartment, his parents, and Susan, blamed Emily. We were best friends, so I was his, quote, only influence, Emily texted me. We still laugh over how the fuck I was supposed to make him gay. The church sees the simplest, most innocent things as grounds for punishment. At a sleepover at the Martins one night, Andrew told Emily about French kissing. Somehow Susan found out and beat Emily for it. The student whose so-called friends had forced her out of the bisexual closet had other things to worry about.
1: No, I was, um, I was outed um, as bisexual by some of my classmates and then... Um, the administration tried to convince me I had to tell my parents because, quote, I uh, remember it was Susan Kinsley who told me she was one of the teachers there that I needed to tell my parents in case my mom heard anything and accidentally tried to defend me. I was a teenager. I was getting pretty close to graduation. That's why I like I begged them not to tell my not to call my parents, not to tell them anything because I was like I will be homeless mentally. Um, like when I was. Struggling with bisexuality, you know, instead of being like a pastor who's a judge, he was condescending, he was telling me that I couldn't, if I was bisexual, it meant that I was um, promiscuous, because bisexual implies
0: you have a boyfriend and a girlfriend, and I'm just like, oh my god, this is accurate. Although Andrew didn't come out as trans until recently, when he got together with his fiance, his sense that he was somehow different from the other kids came early. He remembers the day a Berean friend came to his house to play.
2: And she had come over to my house and I had one of those stupid Barbies that was like life size. And I was being stupid and I kissed it. And I was like, I'm actually a boy. And I'm like, this is my girlfriend. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I think she laughed thinking I was just playing around or being stupid. So then she jokingly kissed it. But it was like in my my own little way, I think that was me trying to tell her, like, that's how I felt.
0: Of course, this
2: compounded things. If you are trans or gay or bisexual or anything like that, if you were in that school, it was like you had to keep it a big dark secret because you were pretty much going to get sent to hell for anything like that. And you were disgusting and perverted. And it was of Satan, basically. And I was trans. So when they would have, like, the girls and the boys line up, I would always feel like I wanted to be with the boys. And... I always liked hanging out and related more with the boys than I did with the girls. But it's like, if you hung out with boys in that school, then it must mean, you know, meant that you liked them. And then everybody pointed it out or pointed it out that you were being inappropriate.
0: These days, Andrew marvels that he's not the only one. And the strange thing is
2: when I do research, and I look up people that I went to school with from Berean, a lot of us, and I'm not, I don't know how or why, and I'm not even saying that Berean could have that kind of power to change somebody, but a lot of us are either gay, appear to be transgender, Not just me, either. Um, There's a couple people that have completely, like, turned... It looks like they're transgender. People have come out as bisexual. Many different things. Somehow or another, you know, involving the LGBTQ plus community. And I think it's so funny because... They tried to steer you so far and clear away from that. And here we are. A lot of us are somehow
0: tied in with it. And Andrew's not the only one who noticed.
3: No, I think they would, too. Honestly, I think they'd have a fucking heart attack because that's one of the, like, list of things that they drill down your throat is, like, not OK. Right. And it's, see, that's the reason that I'm not on speaking terms with my mother, um, because because i'm gay and it's like it, it's just it's so sad to me to think that like something as something as small as like being who you are can cannot be okay to the to the point where like well like you're not part of a church like i'm not part of my family like things like that it's just it's so sad and it is very interesting to see like like you said like i don't think you can i don't think it turned us like different sexualities but like it, it's very it's very interesting to see like what has happened to people who have come out of Iran and like who they are now and it's it's you can almost make a, a reality tv show out of this shit.
0: lgbtq kids had an especially shitty time under susan at all but being straight at baran was also no great shakes sex was of course strictly forbidden and what Susan called unholy communication of word, touch, or association, along with premarital pregnancy, would get you tossed.
3: I knew, like, sex was never a thing. Like, you, we would hear about that in every fucking, what did they used to call it? chapel. On, on every Friday, they had chapel, like a long chapel.
0: Yeah. And like,
3: the, preach, uh, the gym would preach and everything, and I feel like it was constantly being drilled in our heads that, like, You couldn't have sex, you couldn't do this, you couldn't be gay, you couldn't, like, it was like, there was all of this, like, what's what's the word I'm looking for? Like, like, not target, but like an emphasis on, like, no sex. And it was like, what the hell?
0: But even making innocent eyes at a crush was forbidden.
3: Because everybody thought they were doing the wrong thing, just by, like, being attracted to someone. Yeah. Not even, you know what I mean? Like, they... It's so unhealthy the way that everyone who's been through that school is was raised. It's not like it's not the way any child should be raised, right? Like you think you're you think you're wrong for ha- for even like saying, "Oh, I think that girl's pretty at 15 years old." There's something wrong. You should be able to like figure things out, not think, "Oh my God, I can't even." I'm not, I'm not talking about even like. Looking at like tips or anything. I'm just saying, like, even being attracted to someone was like not
0: allowed.
3: Right. And it's like, you can't, you, you, it's just not
0: healthy to me. Post 2000, under Susan, the handbook's take on co ed romance rejected, quote, contemporary dating practices as an inauthentic biblical expression of romantic relationships, fostering a sampling mentality, which then fosters superficial and temporary relationships and selfishness. The temptation to pair off, Susan's handbook continued, often results in inappropriate emotional and physical attachments, false hopes and expectations raised and dashed, broken hearts, and subsequent conscience hardening. Physical attachments are an obvious disaster for young people's futures, and romantic preoccupations compete with our educational goals, and for some, completely eclipse the educational process. Such relationships tempt other young people in the group to emulate their peers. At Milford Christian, only, quote, wholesome friendships and properly governed social groups were allowed. You weren't
2: allowed to hold hands. You weren't allowed to kiss. You weren't allowed to do anything at Berean. And they tried to control that literally until you were like 18, like an adult.
0: At MCA, Susan wrote, We wish to promote supervised, innocent, healthy, and biblically grounded co-ed friendships brother and sister-like relationships, so boyfriend-girlfriend relationships and any manifest expression like pairing off, holding hands, lengthy or frequent embracing or kissing are not permitted and will be cause for corrective action. As always, parents were asked to keep their kids in check to enforce Brian's principles out of school as well as in. If the parents didn't specifically agree to do so, the handbook warned, their children would be expelled. We understand that this may be a rather new and difficult concept, Susan sympathized. MCA wishes to encourage you and offers our assistance toward understanding and implementing a biblical view of male and female interpersonal relationships. As always, the leaders of Brian, Susan especially, took demented joy in enforcing the rules. One story I heard involves a little spot around the corner from the school and well-loved by its students. I wonder what Susan and Jim would have thought of its trailblazing founder.
6: And we found a shop you've got to check out. Come with me to the Sunday House in Milford. Basically, the Sunday House started in 1963 by my great grandmother Angelina. Um, She graduated college in the 60s during a time where like not many women were graduating. And she had this idea of opening a business. So she opened a fruit and vegetable stand actually right here And she just decided one day that ice cream was maybe a better alternative. My grandfather ran the business every day, you know, for 50 years, really. This was his entire life. And
0: we grew up here. I remember working here since I was like 10 years old. As with all ice cream shacks in Connecticut, the Sunday House was open only in the summer. So it had to have been summer when school was out of session when this happened.
2: One of the teenage girls, an older teenager, mind you, was there with a guy they both went to Berean and they were just holding hands at the Sunday house and I'm not even sure if they kissed or not it wasn't like a disgusting kiss it was just a peck but it could have just been them just holding hands and Mrs. Martin was driving by and saw them and literally turned her car around dragged their asses back to Berean
0: and I think punished them Such was the standard until students graduated and the time for courtship arrived. Young men and women would then be allowed to pair off, but only if they made a mutual lifelong commitment to betrothal and marriage. This was a lot to ask of a kid, and one girl, upon hearing that the boy she was secretly dating wanted to court her, dropped him like a hot potato. Formal lessons on courting, held during school time in chapel, started early. It was about, like,
1: courting. Mm-hmm. And I was only like ten or eleven or twelve at that time, so I wasn't even really
3: thinking about courting or dating at that point. Yeah, because I was
1: too young. Like you have crush maybe, but like at least I wasn't thinking anything long term.
0: All students received a copy of Joshua Harris's 1997 book, "I Kiss Dating Goodbye," which soon became a central text for the evangelical purity movement and made its author as former evangelical and writer Liz Lenz puts it, a superhero on the holiness circuit. It was God's job to provide them with a partner, Harris warned his young readers, so they were not to, quote, stir up love with each other. It meant that I was raised with this idea, Lenz wrote, that attraction doesn't matter, that physicality doesn't matter, that your feelings don't matter. Even if you remain pure on a physical sexual level, Harris counseled, Dating was a game that forced you to surrender pieces of yourself to those undeserving, thus contaminating your entire life. When you did eventually get married, said Harris, you were inviting all those past matches into your relationship, your home, your bedroom. Harris's message was heavily criticized, including in one memorable article entitled, Nobody Wants to Date a Whore. His critics said he reduced the agency of young girls, promoted the views of sexual purity under a hierarchical father-daughter relationship and of women as property, and sent a message in support of rape. Harris would later disavow the book. Fear, he wrote, of messing up, of getting your heart broken, of hurting someone else or of sex is never a good motive. While scripture is clear that sexuality should be expressed within marriage, he continued, that didn't mean dating was wrong. I think that's where people get into danger, where problems arise, Harris said. We have God's word, but then it's so easy to add all this other stuff to protect people, to manipulate people, to control people, to make sure that you don't get anywhere near that place where you could go off course. Harris would go on to divorce his wife and see plans for a documentary called I Survived I Kiss Dating Goodbye scrapped by producers. Harris, the producers told the media, had been completely untransparent. Even if you wanted to court, the school gave itself license and authority to ensure that you were equally yoked with your partner. Secularly, yoking is an agricultural term, meaning that two oxen, when joined together for a task like tilling farmland, need to pull with equal strength, neither dominating the other. The oxen, of course, are a metaphor. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, Read 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? Berean's leaders took yoking seriously. They fancied themselves ultimate matchmakers, deeming and dooming many proposed matches as dead on arrival.
3: I remember Jim Loomer always had a problem with me because I, I had, me and Jason had like a crush on each other for those, like since you were kindergarten. Mm-hmm. And we like, quote unquote, dated, but didn't because that was like illegal there yeah but we would like talk on the phone and stuff and jim loomer had like a huge issue with me he hated me because of it
0: just because you were dating him or was there something he didn't like about you specifically
3: i always thought it was just because he knew that jason liked me i can't even say date because like we we saw each other and liked each other but like do you know what i mean And that was like, dating was not a thing there. That was like, no. And I knew that, but like we had a crush on each other and everybody knew it. And I I always thought that Jim Loomer just didn't like me because of
0: that. Jim and his acolytes would often set their sights on girls they believe would make the perfect daughter-in-law. Of course, after making the perfect wife for their sons. I heard of three occasions on which the desired relationship failed to take off, leaving the wannabe matchmaker simmering in rage. Kathy Loomer expecting one girl to marry a loomer son, had the young lady over to the house to examine all she'd inherit as a loomer wife. But when the girl started hanging out with another boy, the two were followed to a coffee shop, and I heard of other couples being stalked, spied on, followed in cars. Finally, the girl's mother, a teacher, was given a choice. If her daughter didn't break it off with the interloper, the entire family would be forced out of Berean meaning not only the church and the school, but the women's job as well. Ultimately, the family left behind not only Milford Christian, but a way of life. I went back to school to get my degree, the mom told me years later, over barbecued chicken, because I was never going to let anyone control me ever again. But for the girls left behind, control was the only thing they knew. That, and that they bore sole responsibility for whatever evils befell them, and the boys.
3: The word they would always use, though, was modesty. Mm-hmm. You couldn't show any, like, not any skin, but, like, you had to be very, like, covered. You couldn't, like, show anything ever.
0: Right. Because you're like, causing your brothers in Christ to stumble.
3: Right. Exactly. Which was teaching, like, okay, if I wear a low-clush shirt and I go ahead mm-hmm. and get, like, winked or something, it's my fault. Like, what? Just sick. They were always like, you, could, you couldn't show anything or else, you, like, that terminology is exact. You're, ca- you're causing your brothers in Christ to stumble. Like, is that my problem or is that my brother in Christ's problem? Right. Get your eyes off mm. your fucking
0: tits. But some people couldn't help themselves because no one had ever told them they didn't have the right. Here's a story from October 2008. A few months after, Emily Martin had graduated early from Berean's high school. She was 16 years old.
7: And that following, I want to say it was probably November, they have this uh, barn dance at Camp Cedar Crest in Orange. And uh, so I drove there because I grew up in a cult and all my friends
3: mm-hmm.
7: were from this cult. So I wanted to go hang out with my friends. So I went and I drove to Peter Cross to hang out with my friends for the night at this barn dance. Um, And uh, I had been there for maybe like a half an hour. um, And people were like funneling inside. And Mark grabbed me by the arm and pulled me behind the building to tell me that my shirt was cut too low. And that I was causing my brothers in Christ to stumble. I told him if he didn't let go of me and mind his business, that I would be telling my dad what he had done.
0: And did you know him? Like, did you have any connection to, I mean, it sounds like he felt comfortable so, doing that to you. I mean, <clears throat> that's
7: the thing. The tr- That church fosters this sense of community where you can just,
0: correct anyone's kid. The church fostered something else too. Something darker. I've heard a lot of stories about, you know, girls who underwent sexual abuse that the church turned a blind eye and sort of helped the parents do the same thing.
1: Yeah, I mean, I know I know somebody did a student who raped an,
0: uh a young girl at the school and it was swept under the rug by Jim Limmer. So was a, a male student raped a female student?
1: Yeah.
0: Was that at, was that off campus or was that like, and I I keep saying campus, but was that at the church or the school or was it elsewhere? I'm not sure. Okay. Because the other thing I've heard of too is that, you know, if a girl's getting molested, she's a Jezebel and she's a whore. Oh, absolutely. Because she caused her, she caused her brother in Christ to stumble. That Doreen had a lot in common with these kids living under a cloistered evangelical rule has always been painfully obvious. The Who's the Boss ban is now a prohibition on Pokemon. Both Berean and Parkview Christian, Doreen's second to last school, promised that the corporal punishment of children would always be administered in love. But more than anything, the abnormally strict codes of conduct as to appearance, sex, and relationships, the imposition of shame cycles, were what hit me in the gut. In my mind's eye, I could see Emily Martin in the driveway at 1316, sobbing as her little diary of confessions, her scrapbook of crushes, went up in flames. I could see Doreen in Susan Martin's office, anxiety at a fever pitch, hoping to God that her bra and her skirt and her underwear would pass muster with Susan and Kathy and Jim. These girls, and all the others, have never been precious and protected, valued far above rubies. They were just collateral damage, inevitable wreckage left behind as people like Kathy and Susan and Jim soldiered on, tramping over them, confident in their belief that all they did, they did for God. Doreen Vincent never got a chance to become that perfect Proverbs 31 wife, or whatever else she wanted to be. She never grew into a woman who could consider a field and buy it, plant a vineyard there. Guvea had sprung up across from 1316, of course, but that was long after she was gone. Doreen can never make tapestry for herself, clothe herself in fine linens and in her favorite color, purple. But the women of Berean can, because they're more than just Doreen stand-ins. They're the Doreens who lived. Mark and Jim and Susan and their buddies have been shaming and debasing and abusing girls like Doreen Vincent and Emily Martin for years. This past August, Emily decided it had gone on too long. Enough was enough, and she was going to burn the whole thing to the ground.
5: Walk softly, children. Walk softly, children. Walk softly, children. Find your freedom, little children.